Hi, friends. Welcome to the Gritty and Curious Show, a podcast where we have conversations with gritty and curious people. I'm your host, Austin Schlesinger, and today I have the pleasure of speaking with the Gritty and Curious Waj. Full name, Waj Jelani, but he goes by Waj. He's my favorite professor that I've ever had throughout my time at Rutgers. We were supposed to do an independent study together, but that fell through because of COVID. And he has lots of knowledge about investing, hedge funds, education, and so, so much more. So I'm really excited to get into this conversation. Waj, welcome to Gritty and Curious. Thank you for having me, Austin. Thank you for the glowing comment. Uh, <laughs> so I guess, should I do a little uh, intro about myself? Yeah, give a little intro. So uh, for all of Austin's fans out there, I come from the investment world. I did, um, when I graduated from Rutgers, I'm a product of Rutgers through and through. I did my BS in ComSci, my BA in economics. At Rutgers, I did my master's in quantitative finance at Rutgers, and I did my PhD at Rutgers, all right? So I'm purely a product of Rutgers. I did, my whole, my whole career, I pretty much worked on the buy side. So I, worked, I started working off the Merrill Lynch Investment Managers. Um, they obviously got bought out by BlackRock, that, that piece, because they, the, they were the buy side. After that, I did a, a year at J.P. Morgan and Chase. I wanted to structure j- jumbo mortgage loans; wasn't happening there. Then I finally went over to a hedge fund slash broker dealer, which I don't even think is kind of legal at this point anymore in this day and age. But <laughs> and uh, I was there; I was doing ab- aspect securities and CDOs. Austin, you remember me talking talking about that? And that's where and that was around the time of the house, the, the uh, 2008 meltdown, a few years before that. So, and we were trading the stuff that's you know pretty much brought down, almost brought down the world, the financial world. And uh, most money I've ever been seeing made in my life. I mean, it was just, it was mind-blowing, right? It's mind-blowing. Almost as, almost as cool as what happened in March with COVID in terms of money. So um, let's, I know, I know we wanted to talk a little bit about the 2008 financial meltdown. So let's talk like a little bit about that and then compare it to what happened with COVID. All right, so 2008, it was pretty much the banking industry imploded, right? The banking industry imploded. And it, it was purely... I mean, people, they, they, have, they talk a lot of jive about what really happened. Look, the reality is uh, the banking industry messed up, right? And they messed up, they messed up royally. And the reason they messed up, because the, they, they knew in the back of their mind that, um, first of all, it's all about just making money. And the, whatever they did in securities they were selling, there was no ramifications for it, right? So you basically know the, the gist of what happened. You saw the big short, right? You know what securities we were selling? I'm so bad with movies. It's it's on my list, but I haven't I haven't watched it yet. So basically, they were taking any kind of asset loan, like take a house, right? Any random house. They were taking that loan and they're basically securitizing it and giving it to investors, right? That's nothing new. It's been happening for whatever, right? The new thing right. they started doing is they're like, wait a minute, wait a minute. Let's charge. Let's get insurance on that bond, right? That insurance, credit default swaps, right? That became a security in itself because the way that insurance works is that monthly or quarterly, you're paying whoever holds that, whoever you're insuring against, AIG, right? So AIG would sell insurance on those bonds that were backed by these houses. And those insurances, they got paid monthly or quarterly. Well, Goldman Sachs and these other investment banks were like, wait a minute, wait a minute. That's a great piece of investment too. Why don't we just take all those insurance contracts because they're getting paid as well. Everything's fine. Real estate's going up. The world is great. Let's securitize that and sell that as well, right? They would securitize that, create another bond. Oh, and guess what? Let's insure this bond too, right? So you, see, <laughs> you see where I'm going with this? Yeah. One, house, one set of houses is creating like 15, 16 different securities all based on that house. 
And if one part of that collapses, everything it all, collapses. It all falls apart, right? And that's what happened. Everything fell apart because eventually the housing, you know, the housing valuations were through the roof, and eventually interest rates had to be adjusted. And from there, it's, you know, it's, it's dominoes. And from there, I think the biggest mistake was, and I said this, I was at a uh, lecture in another university, and there was a person that worked for the Fed there. And I was saying the biggest mistake that happened was, you know, the whole thing fell apart. It's fine that, you know, the government stepped in and they, they fixed the situation, which, you know, which is good. I don't, I totally, you know, support that. That's what makes the American brand so strong, right? But the way they did it, and I gotta, I gotta, I mean, it started with Bush, but it really happened under Obama. Bush started it, but Obama took it to another level. And this is why I always, I don't know if you see any of my rants on LinkedIn, I talk about corporate socialism. Very familiar. <laughs> right? So he adopted corporate socialism for the financial sector. And the mistake here was made, and I remember the, the, the person that worked at Fed, she was like shocked I said this. Obama should have let those banks fail. Every single one of them, we should have let them fail. Because every day banks fail in this country, small banks. And the Fed comes in, and they have a whole process of liquidation and default. People's accounts are okay. Everything's okay. You know, it's smooth. This is unprecedented because these are investment banks, right? Technically, they have, the federal government has no obligation to bail these guys out, right? I mean, these guys have a tremendous amount of bonuses and they make crazy salaries for a reason. But we came in and we bailed them out. And the mistake here was they should have, if they wanted to bail them out, we should have firstly bailed out or um, gave some sort of extension to salaries. Like the government could have took over the payroll for most of the workers and these investment banks. I have no problem with that. That would give people sufficient time to, you know, adjust and find new, new, uh, new places to work. So that would have been, those guys would have been okay, right? And, and still people would argue that point because they're like, no, these guys are paid a ridiculous amount of money, right? But I would argue that the base salaries are different than the bonuses, right? You know, in, in the investment world, we make our money off bonuses, right? So just covering the base salaries is not, is not, is not that big a deal. But everything else should have been just defaulted. Everything. And what they should have done is they should have went to AIG. So Goldman Sachs argues the point now that, hey, look, we never needed a bailout in the first place. We were okay, right? I kind of disagree, but whatever. Even Goldman wants, who's going to argue with Goldman, right? We're right. never going to know at this point because what they should have done is should have went to AIG. Like, look, we're not going to let bail any of you guys out. But all the other insurance you know, uh, divisions you have will take over. And the U.S. government, literally, I mean, we're talking about socialism here, would have taken over all these insurances, not on those securities, but on everything else, car insurance, life insurance, health insurance. They would have adopted that. They would have taken on all of the payrolls for these investment banks and any other, uh, any other financing that, because all of a sudden financing like went through the roof, like interest rates were through the roof because you know, the whole market was shaky. And what the government could have came in, they could have came in and literally become the bank. The Fed could have became the bank, right? Kept everything smooth, and then let all these investment banks fail. Let all these hedge funds fail. Let all these portfolios fail. And what they could have done is they could have bought up all those houses. They could have said, look, we're going to take over all, the, all these securities now at dirt cheap. And then they could have just forgave all the, you know, all the people. This would have cost us a fraction amount of money that we did spend, even though I think we did make money off of it, by the way. I think the U.S. government did make money off of this. But... Um, the problem is that we have such a massive balance sheet after that, and we have to unwind that balance sheet. Nobody knows what was going to happen once we issue these securities into 
back into the world. Because what they started doing is uh, they bought all these asset-backed securities. The Fed came in and bought all these asset-backed securities that we were selling to these hedge funds and some of the hedge funds had, the CDOs, asset-backed securities. Everybody could just sell at the Fed at a nice premium dollar. I remember, uh, I remember one hedge fund guy was cracking up. He was cracking up Austin. He's like, look, if the government wants to buy my garbage, who am I to say no, anything about it, right? <laughs> right? He was cracking up, he just, and he sold all the securities to the government. So we own all that, we, we, but we did, the securities did get better because the government, you know, they stabilized the market, but they stabilized again the market. I, I don't want to drag this on because this could literally become a whole separate lecture, what happened, everything. It gets very technical too. But anyway, yeah. they did corporate socialism. Now, so what's, what's like a definition of corporate socialism? For people very simply, it's the government covers any corporate losses. It's that simple. Any, co publicly, any publicly traded corporation, any profits they make, they keep. Any losses they, 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 they have, the taxpayers, we, we take care of it. Okay. So it's essentially empowering business and corporations to... Uh, it's, it, yeah, it's, it's basically telling corporations, you're good. Whatever huh. you do, you're good. No matter what happens, you're going to make money. Even if you do stupid things and you, you, know, you deserve to go bankrupt, you're mm -hmm. going to be all right. We got so you. So where, where were you in 2008? So finally, by 2008, when I was there, so I was split between um, being on the trading desk. So we were on the right side of the trade. Libertas Partners, that's where I worked, was on the right side of the trade. And these guys made bank, right? These guys made bank. The head of the guy, the guy that owned uh, Libertas was Gary Ketcher. Uh, really cool guy, right? And my boss was Amir Khan and these other guys, Ronak, uh, a bunch of these other guys. So they all made bank, right? Um, but the other half of the year when everything really started falling apart and people started getting fired, I was a Citigroup on the trading desk. I just wanted to do a year of Citigroup before I started my PhD. That's a whole other story there, right? <laughs> and that was really cool because um, Citigroup has the largest trading desk in the city, right? It's, you, have you been there? No, I haven't, but I have a few friends that just got jobs there recently. So, I mean, unfortunately, because of COVID, they're not going to check it out. I mean, before, I think they used to do like business school trips to this trading floor. It's just beautiful. It's the largest mm. trading floor, massive ceiling, huge windows, beautiful view of the Hudson, an exchange place, right? So there, what was awesome is I was there at Citigroup when everything hit the fan. And, you know, stock prices fell. These investments, like, I think Goldman went down like four bucks or something like that. And that's another way people made money, by the way. But so these people were being fired, right? All these people were being fired that was involved in this. And I don't know if you remember me telling in class, the way these guys get fired is not the way average people get fired. These guys get fired, they get a send-off like they're gladiators, right? And this is Rome. Like, people are on the desk. People are cheering and screaming for these guys as they're walking out with the boxes in their hand. And the reason being is because these guys get payouts like 12 to $15 million as they get fired. What you How? I want you to think about that, Austin. You but but up. why, though? Because this is, the, because this is, their, you know, this is their contracts, because they essentially had profits from before. They get severance, et cetera, et cetera. Also, they want to set up a precedent, right? Because their bosses could get fired. Their bosses want to get paid too. In Wall Street, when you get fired at a certain level, you always get paid. In corporate America, and so in Wall Street, it works that way, obviously, when you're at a certain level. And in every corporation, in the C-suites, the executives, they get taken care of like that because they have it in their contract also. These traders, these portfolio managers, they must have had some sort of deal or something along those lines. They had some profits they generated. And they get a severance, 
and they get a severance of $12-$15 million. And by the way, that severance is all taxpayer dollars. I'm mind blown. I've never heard of this before. Oh. I've heard from like the C-suite, but I haven't heard from like portfolio managers, like that perspective. The traders, yeah, the traders get paid, man. The tra- These guys were getting fired and they were getting paid like nice packages. So if you're a lower end trader, you'll get some money, but you won't. Obviously, it depends on how high up you go, right? But the higher you go, the bigger severance you get. That's the beauty of our corporate system. Right? right. That's the dream, brother. That is the dream. <laughs> it sure does sound like the dream. So, I mean, look, this is why, um, see, okay, these liberals like AOC, you know, I don't know if you remember Occupy Wall Street, all these guys, like they're pissed. The Tea Party, yep. right? The Tea Party. Remember, the Tea Party originally was all about these bailouts that were being sent out, right? And then the Republican uh, establishment co-opted them to be anti-Obama, which is whatever. But, you know, everybody was pissed, and they were rightly so. The problem is that a lot, uh, if you're not part of the machine, if you're not in the system, in the game, you have no idea what to be pissed about. And you're not really sure, like, what's wrong. You know what I mean? Yeah, because they're they're unfamiliar with what's going on and what the system's like and everything that actually goes on. Yeah, exactly, exactly. Like, I mean, so the, the bottom line, that's why at these lectures, like, at that at that university that was in front of the Fed, I said, you got to let it fail. You got to let it fail. And you got to let it fail in a, in a responsible way, right, where, where the workers are taken care of. Where people that weren't weren't had nothing to do with companies that had nothing to do with what was going on, are are protected by the federal government, right? And you know, everything will be smooth and we'll be better off for it, because next time around, the corporations, the, the executive, the traders, the post managers will be smarter. Lesson learned. That didn't happen, right? That didn't happen. Set the stage now for COVID, right? Right. Before COVID, my man Trump slashed corporate taxes, right? In fact, that's him and the Republicans in this election cycle that's coming up. That's the only thing they can really point to. Like, hey, we slashed corporate taxes, right? And, you know, for corporations, obviously, it's, it's kind of controversial because they kind of added money to the debt. They, they kind of added money to the debt. I don't want to get into what should have happened. But, but anyway, corporations, they had all this money. You know what they did with all that money? What? They did buy stock buybacks. Remember we talked about stock buybacks in class? Yeah. Right? So stock buybacks don't add anything to the economy, and they make the stock prices go up. And that's great for these executives because they all get paid in stock, stock options anyway. All right? But again, look, it's capitalism. They do what they want to do. You do you. Right? COVID happened. These corporations now have no money. <laughs> <laughs> they have no cash. Because they, gave, you know, they did stock buybacks and they gave dividend payments, which I don't have a problem with, right? Give it back to the investors. Some, some hedge fund managers, Chumath, you know, the, uh, the Bill, famous billionaire investor, I posted stuff. He had a problem with that. I really don't have a problem with that, giving dividends back. But, you know, they had no money. Look, and it's not their fault, again, right? COVID came. Uh, I think Trump is right to some degree. I think China did screw us a little bit, right? But I don't think it was China's fault that much because I think their officials, local officials, screwed them, the national government as well. Nobody knew how bad it really was. Let's put it that way, right? So um, everything got slashed, blah, blah, blah. Bam. In March, you saw the stock prices get, you know, this is something unexpected. We have to shut down the economy. Boom. Stock prices drop. All right? And if you remember, this is when I started ranting on LinkedIn. I'm like, yo, guys, guys, you got to buy. <laughs> All right? Yeah, no, I remember. The market, because I know what's going to happen. The government, I know Obama started this. And I know the politicians, both Democrats and Republicans, man, they have a taste of this, corporate socialism. They're going to do something, right? And 
on Congress, it was public. Like, they were, everybody was screaming at them to do something, all the corporations. And they were at, I think, 1 and 2 in the morning. Um, they finally passed the bill. And I remember people, went, people were in their offices at hedge funds. And the offices, like, 1, 2 in the morning as well, some of these, some of these guys I know. And they're waiting for that. And they're going to trade as soon as that, that passed. And so what happened was the Fed was given $2 trillion, which basically means they're going to print $2 trillion. Like, we don't have, they don't have that $2 trillion. They're just going to run those machines. You're going to know what I'm talking about when you start working down there. They, just, <laughs> they run those machines. They got the cash. And they're going to start just giving that to the corporations. Right? And that's why the stock price, prices just surged. And like we're at, record, we're at close to record numbers now. Right? Even though the economy is tanking. Because people wanted to invest when they had when there was money back into the economy? Is that what you're trying to say? Well, the, the smart players did that. Right? The smart players definitely did that once they saw the government back in it. You, like, there's this old saying, you don't fight the Fed. The Fed, what they did was they have $2 trillion. And the Fed was now going to do what they should have done in, back in the 2008 crisis. They were buying up all the debt. So they're literally, a corporation can literally have junk, junk, what we call junk bonds, right? Like it has debt that's so bad because the corporation sucks. The Fed bought up the debt, right? And the Fed is also giving virtually uh, any loans to corporations at virtually a 0%. Why wouldn't a corporation take it? Right. So if you're a corporation, like if somebody's offering you virtually a 0%, unlimited amount of loan, not unlimited, but as much as money as you possibly want at virtually 0%, what are you going to do? Obviously, you're going to take that loan. You're going to take and get a Ferrari, my man. Right? <laughs> right? What do you care? Right? Maybe you'll pay it back. Maybe you won't. Because again, you're a corporation. You can always default and go bankrupt. Remember? Right. 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 So... What's going to happen? Artificially, these stock prices, these stocks are going to, these stocks are going to shore up, and a lot of people are blaming like Robinhood investors all over LinkedIn and everywhere. I see people blaming Robinhood investors. Yo, Robinhood investors are such a small percentage of the market. They can't move the market, right? No. It's these big institutional investors. They're moving the market because they see that. Oh, okay, cool. These corporations now virtually have unlimited money, right? And it doesn't matter how bad they are. Like some, the term being used now is called zombie, zombie corporations. Because they're corporations that should go bankrupt because they're making no money and they have no good product or service and their management is horrible, yet they have access to all this money. So what are, what are some examples of zombie corporations versus corporations that you think are going to excel as a result of making good investments and having good management? All right. So I, I don't want to pick on them, but Hertz, I don't want to say Hertz is a, is a zombie corporation, but Hertz went bankrupt, right? Through no fault of their own, by the way. I mean, there's just no business anymore, right? What happened a few days after Hertz went bankrupt? Their stock price went up like two to three times its value. Why? Because they just took all, because all these loans were being given out. So investors had jumped on it, said, oh, they'll be back. And then they went back to bankruptcy court and they're like, hey, uh, can we restructure our bankruptcy? I think we're back. We're good, <laughs> right? So um, again, that's an example of a company that maybe should have went bankrupt. I mean, I, they shouldn't have gone bankrupt, actually. I feel bad for them. But a corporation that, um, that I think, and I, this is kind of controversial, and this is controversial that I think is solid and has very bright prospects for the future is Tesla, right? And it's controversial I say that because half of the institutional, the big, the big players are all in on Tesla and Elon Musk, all in. Whereas the other half 
are, feel that it's a big con. He's a con man. Tesla's a, con, a big con. It can't survive, and they have massive short positions against it. It's the most shorted company, I think, now on Wall Street, Tesla. So, wow. But, I mean, I, this comes down to my opinion. I, I think at the, end of the, at the end of the day, everyone's going electric, right? All these car companies are going electric. And it's not something like, yeah, the technology is there, but when you mass produce something, that's difficult. All these corporations are entrenched in the way they do things. Ford, Toyota, all of them. They do what they do really well, but this is, something, this is a different beast. Musk is already producing it at some sort of mass scale, right? Also, right. Musk's technology is working, and it's ahead of these guys. The reality is, if these guys want to be in electric, the electric business, and they do, it's the future, right, which is great for the, great for the planet, they're going to have to adopt his architecture. Once they adopt, I mean, Mr. Wonderful from Shark Tank, he always talks about, oh, I love Tesla. They're, inf they're, a, they're an information company, a data company, which I love when big investors say that because the question is, what the hell does that mean, right? Google's right. an information company. Facebook's an information company, right? The reality is Tesla, yes, it's an information company. That information translates into infrastructure. Tesla will not only have infrastructure built coast to coast of where those charging stations should be, but I bet, Right, and a lot of other investors bet that they're going to win the battery wars. Meaning, and that's that, that's much bigger than cars and what everybody sees or thinks of when they think of Tesla in the first place. Exactly, because once Tesla does that, guess who they just knocked off? Not Ford, not Toyota, Exxon Mobil. Yeah. Right. And, and yeah, and energy, like I, my dad has always said, because he's worked in like with heavy equipment and with um, like in the energy, gas, and like all of that kind of industry. And he always said the people that own the energy always win. Because if you don't, if you don't have electricity, none of this shit works. None of it works. So it's all about, you know, where's that power coming from? Who owns that power? Like, it's, it's truly amazing. Yeah, he's, he's spot on. Your father's spot yeah. on, right? And think of all the power ExxonMobil and as a lobby had in our country for decades. I mean, they, they were, they were, they, they were uh, directly involved in our, in our foreign policy, ExxonMobil, right? I mean, a powerful, a very powerful entity. Elon Musk is going to knock them off? Possibly, right? What does that mean in terms of valuation? What does that mean in terms of industry? It's going to shake things up. And all these car companies will be not, not Tesla's competitor. They'll be Tesla's clients. So, yeah, so I think that, you know, going back to what you said before about like the true value of what Tesla is, it's not about exactly, you know, the end product. It's not about the electric car because other companies are producing electric cars. But the thing is that the core competencies and capabilities of the Fords and other car companies is that they have the processes in place to produce this product or X product. They don't have the systems, processes, the super smart people and the resources to produce at scale that Musk has done right now. And I understand that. But what do you what do you say when people say, you know, Musk is just too volatile, he's all over Twitter, he's a lunatic, like what like how, how do you justify backing him when he says ridiculous things? I mean I can't, right. Uh, I, I mean as an investor I love it trader because that 
Uh, I don't know if you remember, but he, he said that the stock is way too expensive and the stock prices dropped. I told people buy because it's going to go up in a few days. It went up a few days, right? So I love it as, in, as a trader. As, as, if you're going to day trade it, I love that stuff because behavioral, um, behavioral economics comes into play. People get nervous. They drop the stock. But in terms of defending the fact that the guy's volatile and he's like, and he just gets weirder and weirder, by the way. Let's be clear, right? I can't, I can't defend that. But in reality, Steve Jobs, Steve Jobs was just as crazy. Like, have you read about Steve Jobs? I've read a bunch about him. I've watched like movies about Apple and everything too. Like, I, everything I hear about him, he was a crazy dude. Yeah, he made people cry, man. <laughs> He would make grown engineers cry, right? But um, they interviewed some of the people that stuck with them. And those same engineers that were abused by this guy, right? Abused by this guy. They're like, nah, man. I, uh, I love this guy, the boss, because he brought something out in me that, like, either you're going to be broken by this guy or you're going to be, mo like, it's like the military. Either you're going to break or you're going you're gonna to really excel and become something else and do, like, amazing things. So, um, in that vein, I think the reality is is that uh, when you know when you're when you're you're, you're working at such a high uh, at a high level, you're somebody that is kind of weird. Like Bezos, right? Bezos is not a nice guy. He's a horrible person, human being. God, I hope these people don't listen to this podcast. <laughs> right? But he, he, eventually, he, eventually, eventually. <laughs> all right. Um, you want a controversy? But anyway, but I mean, he also, <laughs> like, have you heard of Amazon's business tactics? They are. I, they, I think they're borderline illegal, the stuff these guys have been on for 30 years. What kind of stuff? Like, um, I once uh, remember, um, I once listened, remember, uh, I think there was this, a company called Diaper.com or something like that. I, I, remember, I remember once listening to their uh, interview, the, the founders, the two guys, right? And they're like, oh, you know, they were, they were negotiating with Walmart. To have, Walmart wanted to buy them out. During the negotiation, you know, Bezos somehow got their number. And he's like, look, I want to I wanna buy you guys out, right? I'm, I'm roughly paraphrasing the story. And he, they're like, no, no, we're going to do a deal with Walmart. He's like, all right, cool. Check out this site right here. Boom. And it was like literally their company, but, but owned by Amazon. But Amazon's company. <laughs> verbatim. Amazon had the infrastructure to, out, and the, to slash their prices. Amazon was going to take a price cut to fa deliver it faster and cheaper. What do you think was going to happen to their company if Amazon did that? It would have gone away. Bye-bye. Those guys apologize to Walmart. Like, yo, we got to sell to Amazon. I'm sorry. <laughs> right? That's it. <laughs> it's a wrap. So more of the story. There's some, there's some crazy dudes out there that are ruling the world. Yeah, look, AOC has some. AOC does, I mean, obviously economics. I love AOC. Love her, right? I disagree emphatically with her economic policies, right? Obviously, right? I would love to actually, you got to have AOC on your podcast. I would love to have you talk with her about her economics, but um, help me get her on. <laughs> I'll talk. I'll, I'll talk to my people, right? But um, so, uh, so AC has a point about capitalism, right? It, it the capitalism is designed to um, bring out the, it's the way it's designed. It's designed so you know, winner takes all. Ideally, that's the whole point of capitalism, and uh, legally, you can be as ruthless as you want. I mean, there's laws around it, and but the laws contain you, right? Literally, the laws contain you. Corporations are sociopaths. They're psychopaths, right? They're just entities that are just trying to maximize profit, profit any which way they can. It's up to society and our governments, our elected officials, 
to regulate them so that they don't destroy us in the process. You know what I mean? And that in harmony built, you know, built everything around us. Right? It works. The system works as long as all the parts are there. And I think what we're lacking now, what happened is what, what, what's falling apart now is the fact that we don't have um, an effective government doing effective regulation anymore in these corporations. So, and which is causing more and more problems. This is why you see the rise of socialism, and you see problem after problem. That's, and even easy problems are just not getting solved anymore. You see hyper-partisanship, and it's just, uh, you know, you, you see it out on Fox News, you see MSNBC, CNN, what's going on, all this stuff. How do we get on right. the topic? What the hell were we just talking about? Tesla, Elon. Yeah. Yeah, so it's indefensible. I, have, I, I can't really say to any investor, look, he is volatile, he's going to be more volatile, but the reality is this. It's not about Elon. It's not all about Elon. And you talked about this. You just said this a few moments ago. He attracts the best and the brightest. If you're an engineer, do you want to go to Toyota? All these young engineers. Or do you want to go to Tesla? You're right. At the end of the day, who's attracting the talent? It's Elon. You know? That's, that's what it's all about, too. It's, I mean, it's these super smart people with radical ideas that attract people that are super talented and much more rational than they are and surround themselves with those types of people. And that's kind of, I, I mean, based on my research, it seems like that's kind of like the, the common theme to these mega corporations that are you know, popping up all over the place. Yeah, I mean, but most people, a lot of you know, people don't focus on the fact that talent, 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 and these guys are, you know, these guys attract the talent to them. Right. right? And this, it's cult of personality a little bit. It's all about who can tell the tell the right story and get the right people and surround themselves with the with the right people, I guess. Yeah, it's always you know he is part showman, he is part showman, part sales guy, right? Just like just like Trump a little bit, Elon. I mean, there is some similarity there. Same thing with Steve Jobs, right? You remember Steve Jobs was out there with his black turtleneck, showing an MP3 player and calling it the iPod, and everybody was like, "Woo, woo!" Right? It's an MP3 player, <laughs> right? Right. But he like he sold it, so. Yeah, man. Same, it's same thing like the, I was watching a documentary on Theranos and that whole story with, what was her name? Oh, Elizabeth something. Uh, yeah, awesome. Elizabeth something. That's my girl, man. She's freaking awesome. Oh, I know. Bro, like, I, I watch it. It was it was literally like the documentary was like, it gets you so high on Theranos and you're like, oh my God, this is amazing. Like, I want to be just like her. And then she just comes crashing down and like reality hits and it's just like, damn, I really, like I was rooting for her. But that, that's just, it just proves that it's all about the story. Like if you can put on, put on a happy face and tell a good story and surround yourself with people that seem like they know what they're doing, you can raise a ton of money and drive a lot of press. And I think this kind of is a good segue into another thing we want to talk about is the, like the struggles of today's startups and kind of what factors are similar with startups that do very well and which ones don't do very well. So let's let's kind of like gear gear the conversation towards that. So okay, so in this day and age, right, startups, I mean it's, it's just a very interesting space right now. So these startups now, the ones that do well, right? And it's sad to say are the ones that are at the have the right um, the right get the right money and the right mentors. It is such an insider's game now. I feel so bad for these startups that are like real good entrepreneurs that can't crack that can't crack that network. 
I'll give you an example, Y Combinator, right? Y Combinator, once you get into Y Combinator, which is like getting into Harvard or Princeton, right? By just by the fact that you have that Y Combinator label, it automatically, you know, it automatically sends your startup to another level. You automatically have a network of customers that are going to join you, or they're going to join your or check out your product instantaneously, and you're all, all you're in, in terms of access to money, it's all there, and even better, right? You have all this expertise to show you the ins and outs of how to get you how to scale your growth and traction, right? And they have the networks and the partnerships to get that done, right? So it's like a it's like a winning factory, almost. To be an entrepreneur now and not be outside that ecosystem, you have to be amazing. You have to have amazing product or service, right? And in terms of like, um, so let's break it down by product and services, right? So if it's some sort of tech, if it's some sort of tech, you have to have some sort of brilliant tech that's like 10 times better than anything else out there. Because when it comes to technology, any kind of innovation, slight innovation nobody cares about. Nobody cares about that, right? It has to be something that blows away previous technology, right? But even then, like most people, most startups aren't, aren't that kind of level. The startups I see, right, are the, right now, are the software as a services, the platforms, the platform as services, those kind of startups. And right now, those guys, I believe, are having a tough time going to the next level because I mean, there's a, you know, for years we've been talking about this, but there's a massive bubble in the startup, in the startup world. Massive bubble. Most of these startups don't make any money. They're not making any money. They, they have, might have revenue, but their operations are ex far exceed the cost, their operations far exceed their, um, you know, what they're bringing in revenue-wise. So this is something that I, like, never fully understood, like, about business and startups and just, like, how does this company or how did these guys survive so long without making any money and it's it i mean now that we're talking about it it's all about like who you know who you can convince what your story is and unless you have that it, you're right it can't just be a bunch of engineers that are building a product or copying some other product it has to be something that's super revolutionary that's going to catch someone's eye and i i think that i mean now that we're talking about it now like it it's coming together for me, but I never understood, and I, that's why I'm I'm hyped up to talk about startups and just kind of like what this bubble is that you're talking about because like I just never fully got it. So what ended up happening, right, um, man? Wall Street, we always ruin everything. Right? So what ended up happening was it was let's let's you know it was exciting what was coming out of Silicon Valley. There's a lot of innovation coming out. There's still a lot of innovation. I like I think there's a lot of room for a lot of innovation, especially with COVID. I'll talk about that in a second. Like post COVID, there's a whole new world. Mark Cuban talks about it. There's a lot of markets, are, like a lot of businesses are going to fail, but there's going to be a lot of businesses, new way of doing businesses that are going to come up. So it's kind of exciting for your generation at this point. There's a lot of opportunities out there. But right now what's going on is this. It's kind of like a little bit of an ecosystem between the VCs, the private equity firms, and the startups. They're the only ones making money. The people that aren't making money are the investors, right? Aren't the investors. The traditional system was, the investors invest in these private equity firms or these VCs. These VCs find these startups, cultivate them, help, you know, help them along, and then they'll go public. They'll IPO, and, you know, and then everybody will cash out. Right? The investors will cash out. Part of the problem is that uh, the stock market was never designed 
for that. The stock market originally was designed to get capital, to get capital, right? It's now being used for the purposes of just cashing out, right? The problems with these tech companies also are is because of their rounds of valuations, right? So what happens is the first round is the angel round, whatever. You get money, and in return for that money, you say, okay, here you own this percentage of the company, and this company is worth X amount of money, a million dollars, two million dollars, whatever. Every time you get more money, right, if, especially with the VC and PE, they never want to show losses, right? So what do they keep doing? They keep saying, okay, we're going to now give you another round of money, and now are your valuations going to be higher? The reason they're doing this, because on paper to these investors, they want to show, hey, look at our portfolios, right? We invested this much money. This is what they were valued on, on paper by this much. Now they're valued on paper by this much. Now they're valued by this much. So this is how much your money will grow. Come give us money, we'll invest. All right? The reality is there's a huge world of difference between valuation on paper and when you finally hit the stock market, right? And what they found was a lot of these, a lot of these, these companies that were IPO and pre-COVID, right? Their valuation was going down. Like, remember when uh, those guys, Snap, went to the market? Yeah. Right? <laughs> I think we're, we're, was I in class during I that? I think we were, yeah, I think you were in class. I think we were in class during that. I think I You're like, stay away. <laughs> yeah. I didn't invest, I didn't invest at all. So I was like, no, because I, I knew some people that knew some people that are like, yeah, man, these guys don't know what they're doing, right? So <laughs> it turned out, it's hilarious. Once, it, once these companies go public, all their dirty secrets come out. These guys were storing all the images and videos, right? And Austin, I kid you not, there were kids in class when I said they're storing everything, right? Some people's faces went like white, right? They're looking at me and they went white. And I'm looking at them, I'm like, you didn't honestly think that those things were disappearing, did you? <laughs> Nothing disappears in this day and age, right? Nope. So, yeah, so that was hilarious. That first, I won't... I, I won't mention any names, but I remember some students, like their face, their faces, when they realized that everything was being recorded, they were being stored by Snap. Oh, that's priceless. But um, so these idiots, uh, actually, I take that back. They're not idiots. They're billionaires. These winners, baby. These winners, right? <laughs> these guys, um, they were storing everything on, AM on AWS. Do you know how much they were paying to store this? How much? A billion. To a, store all that information? A year. A billion a year. Okay, so then how, how did, so they're just sitting on that. Like, that's just straight, that's one expense out of all of the other things. So, like, how, I don't understand that. How do you value a company that has this much expense? And they're not, I mean, what was their, what was their model when they, advertisements? Like, how much are they making on advertising? Not a billion dollars. So you're asking all the right questions. The only answer I can give you is that there are investors, like everybody in, this, everybody in, in the uh, VC world is, like Mr. Wonderful said, they're going crazy over data information. They're like, oh, you got all this data information. Somebody's got to be able to monetize it, right? So when it went public, but you know, people didn't buy into that, at least with these guys, they didn't buy into it. So what started happening? The stock market started tanking. And I don't think these guys have yet to make a profit. It's just loss after loss after loss, right? That's the problem with these startups now in these day and ages. These guys were hyped up valuation-wise because the VCs and private equity firms needed their valuation on paper to go up so that they can keep getting money from investors, right? But when everybody goes to cash out in the stock market, which, again, is a problem in itself that the stock market is just being used to cash out, 
reality hits and people are like, oh, cool, you're making no money. Why the hell should I buy this stock? And you have no way to make any money, right? And reality right. sets in. So what's happening now, all these guys are sitting, there's a, everybody's sitting on the shores pre-COVID. All these potential IPOs are sitting on the edge. Remember Uber went IPO and they had a bunch of problems, but they're all sitting on the shore. They're like, um, yeah, let's think about this, right? Something's got to give eventually. But the thing is because there's so much money out there, especially now, now we're in the COVID phase and the Fed's giving out all this free money everywhere. This is just going to, this is just going to keep going on and on. The, I mean, the question is, how do we all get in on this? So from like a, an investor's standpoint, let's say that I wanted to invest in one of these later stage startups that might be sitting on an IPO or maybe IPOing soon, but there's not much transparency into actually how they're making money. And there's not much information out there about that kind of stuff. You know, what, what do you look for? Like, I, I just, I'm not getting it. Like, I, I like, I don't understand. <laughs> so, all right. So as an investor, first of all, you're not going to be, unless you're a sophisticated investor, like, so I do own, I am part of uh, one fund that actually invested in some of these startups, right? right. So as a, um, as an individual investor, you're not going to go give money, even though these guys do target like accredited investors. I don't think that's a great idea. Like an angel.co, uh, they target other investors. I don't think that's a really good idea. So you're going to actually go to a private equity fund or a VC and say, hey, I want to invest in you guys and you guys are going to do the due diligence and invest in these guys. Right. Right. That's the way you're going to basically do it now. The, the, now and they'll, they'll take care, take care of all that. So um, for the VC and PE private equity firm, for these guys, they're basically the name of the game is basically it's sad to say, but it's basically charging clients fees and that's how they make their money. The management fee. Right. So the more money they get, the more money they make, whether the investment works out or not. Right now, obviously, the, the more responsible ones, they put their own money in as well. So they're tied into this as well, right? But I mean, the only way they can uh, the only way they can possibly make money again is if they they have a way to cash out, out of, for the investors at least. The the VCs and PEs at the management company they're making money. So the best way for you to actually make money about uh, with everything going on is to actually launch a VC. You and your buddies launch a VC. Start marketing to investors and start finding these startups and growing these startups. And the fastest way to grow these startups, you know what they do? You give these startups money. And you know what they do? They take majority of that money and give it to Google and Facebook and just to buy advertising to get more, more, more like views and hits and just send more people to their, to their website. And that's the way it grows. So at the end of the day, Google and like Facebook, they're making all the money anyway. All this investing money is going to them in terms of advertising. So let's and take a step back for, for a sec because we're pulling Google and Facebook back back into this. And we were talking about data before how Snapchat was storing all of these pictures. Like what are your thoughts on, have you heard of like the David, data dividend project that Yang was working on for a little bit? Or he, I think he might still be working on it. Um, is, is that the one where you the common person gets paid for their data? Essentially, you're yes. Yeah, so there was there's a way they figured out like a, I mean it's I think it's theoretical right now, but paying out people for the data that they're giving these companies. So I personally think that's that it has to be the future. Like I I'm waiting for I don't know if something I I actually I remember years ago there was a Facebook out there, uh, the alternative to Facebook where they weren't going to take your data, 
I think they have, they're on the right track, but I think the reality is there's another, I think there's a few companies doing this now, that they will be like Facebook, they will be like Instagram, but they're going to pay you now. They're going to give you a cut of the action. And I think that's the only way forward at this point, right? Because these companies in themselves are getting too big. Um, I don't know if you know politically, there's a lot of issues now around these, especially with Facebook. People are really angry at Zuckerberg and Facebook, right? And I love the fact that Zuckerberg is not doing anything about it because, um, you know, he has no reason to do anything about it. Facebook is still growing. But I think that's the future. And I, honestly, Austin, I, I mean, I feel that if you're going to invest in something, invest in something like that. Because I think that's where, you know, that has to be the next stage of evolution at this point. There's just so much money being made. It's insane. Why not everybody get a cut of the action? And you slowly see this right now with these influencers on Instagram, right? All these influencers? Yeah, absolutely. Right? And the same thing with, actually, same thing with these podcasts. Joe Rogan's deal, right, sends shockwaves, shockwaves throughout the podcast community, right? Because it pretty much set a price for what everybody's doing. Because everybody can basically look at Joe Rogan, see his audience, right? His content and his audience. And then they, they break it down mathematically to their audience and their content side length. And they can pretty much, you know, guesstimate some sort of valuation. They can guesstimate some sort of like, price on their podcast. You know what I mean? So um, this is kind of like, this is kind of like what we're talking about. But it's going to, I think it, it will feed down, downstream, like it will go eventually, eventually affect these social media companies. And I think I read about some of these social media companies working on that. That, hey, join our app and we'll actually give you a cut of the action, something along those lines. The problem with that is, you know, there's these, these social media apps, they have what we call a network effect. All the people are on them, so it's very, very hard to pull these guys off and get them to start using your, uh, your app. Unless it's something like TikTok, which I don't even understand. I don't get. <laughs> Right, all these high schoolers love TikTok. Right, and don't get pulled in. <laughs> it's ex it's extremely addictive. Like yeah. you'll you'll make a profile, and I swear to God, you'll be on. You'll be like, like my brothers, he loves sending me TikTok. So I'll go and I'll look at one TikTok, and then it automatically goes right to the next one. So naturally, like I'm, and these I don't know how these high schoolers do it. They're brilliant and like. You know, like a hook, like they teach you how to write a hook or like in a video, like they draw you in like the first second, mm -hmm. like immediately, like one second in, I'm like, all right, I'm watching this video, watch the next video. And then 15 minutes, half hour goes by and you're like, shit, they totally drew me in. <laughs> it's because of the videos. Uh, somebody told me it's just a very um, easy way to edit videos with music on that app. Pretty much. Yeah. And I, I know there's a girl named Charlie Amato who's like a multimillionaire because she does like dances on TikTok. So that's all I know. Yeah. All right. <laughs> <laughs> so all yeah. right, cover, cover TikTok. There you go. Yeah, so you're going to have something. You're going to have, so basically I think what's going to happen is you're going to have these apps like that that are slightly different than the other ones, but they're going to give a cut of the action back to everybody. Right? Yeah, and I think, I think that it's, so it's a similar model to, are you familiar with like Substack? No. So Substack is a very easy way to make a newsletter and get people to subscribe to your, your newsletter and kind of build an audience. And you can monetize your, your Substack by charging people who are subscribed to your newsletter. Likewise, are you familiar with Medium? No. Oh, yeah, Medium. Yeah, Medium I know. So Medium is another way that creators and people that are building an audience can get compensated for 
the stuff and that they're putting out there. So it's not it's not like Facebook, but it's you know, it's it's these people that are creating things or making things that are valuable for other people and getting compensated for their work from medium or people that are subscribing into a big pool of, okay, if I pay $10 a month and I have access to this medium content and then that income or that that money is redistributed to the people that are creating all the content for this platform. So I can kind of imagine that might work for these social media companies moving forward. But like you said before, it's it's very difficult to do that because of the, the social network effect. I know that there's a word for it, but it's like, I guess, in short, you're not going to go onto a platform unless all of your friends are on it. And since Facebook and LinkedIn and Snapchat already have critical mass, who's, you know, what am I going to make the, like a Snapchat and get all of my friends or everyone that's on Snapchat already to come to my platform? No, like it's, and especially, I mean, maybe if the incentives are aligned with the users where they're being compensated, then maybe that's a draw. But the whole thing is like, okay, I'm here with my friends. I'm doing this thing. And I don't know if people would prioritize compensation over the ease of just being on a platform already. It's, it's, it's interesting to think about. And I just think with all the data that's going on right now and how unhappy it's making a lot of people, and a lot of people don't realize the whole deal with like how their data is being used until they start talking about buying you know, a new blender bottle and then they see a, a blender bottle ad on their Instagram feed or on Amazon or something like that. And then it becomes an issue. But it's just, it's interesting. It's interesting to see kind of what the, what the future of that's going to look like. Well, I mean, I, I mean, it's like, that's why I brought up TikTok. It, it, it'll work, but it has to be an app or a social media that has a different hook to it. You know what I mean? It has to be something slightly different. And then that's the only way it'll work. That's the only way, because... Even people that will say, oh, I can get compensated or not compensated, you're right. They're still going to be on that other Facebook. We're going to be where everybody else is, right? So it has to be an app that, like TikTok, came on the scene, and, I mean, it's just exploding. People love it, apparently. So it has to be something that's different and unique, right? Yeah, you're, giving something, you're giving something to people that they want, right, something they want. And, again, you're never going to know. We talked about this before, like with the Lean Canvas. You're never going to know. You just got to experiment a lot. You got to experiment. Like, um, I think, like, they have a lot of these stories about these startups, like, oh, one day I was eating a cheesecake and this idea. No, that's total nonsense. Even in Facebook, <laughs> the movie, that's total nonsense. The guy experimented. I love that movie. <laughs> I mean, it's a great movie. I, I love the social network. <laughs> right? But it's nonsense. The guy experimented so much. All these guys, they experimented so much. Iterate, iterate, iterate. You just never know what's going to hit with the masses in our minds. And when it hits, it hits. The only person that's an exception to that was Steve Jobs. That guy was insane. Right? He was a psycho. But he was trained differently. He wasn't a tech guy. He would actually learn calligraphy and like art. He was like a calligraphy art kind of guy. Yeah. And he was just a, a branding genius. Yeah. I mean, I remember uh, reading about how uh, the engineer made like the CPU or like whatever, the CPU, right? The, the, hard, the actual box of the computer. And he's looking at them. He's like, no, that's ugly. He's like, what do you mean it's ugly? Look at what it's doing. He's like, yeah, but it's ugly. Look at the wires are everywhere. And the engineer is looking at him. The guy that made it is looking at him like so like confused. Like, what are you saying? Right? And Steve Jobs is getting angry at this guy. He's like, this is ugly. The wires are everywhere. 
he wanted the wires in the circuitry that no one's going to see, right? To follow a certain uh, a pattern. You get it? Yeah. That's insane. Austin, that's insane, right? It's totally crazy. <laughs> but it worked, that insanity. He was right. He was validated. We were all totally suckered by him. And he's right. We wanted that. We wanted, uh, you know, as human beings, we wanted that beauty in everyday things we use, apparently. Who well, think know? about, like, I'm, so I'm reading this book right now on, on branding. And they talk about, I forget who the author was, but the, the whole moral of the entire book is essentially that people want simplicity. Like, they want, like, they they were talking essentially about the importance of having a great brand. Like, yeah, you need a great product, but people associate products with a brand that makes them feel a certain way. So it's a brand, a brand makes you feel a certain emotional, like evokes a certain emotional response. And that's what you see, like when you see an Apple product, like it's, it's beautiful, it's simple, you know what it does. And it's, it makes you feel a certain way. And even when you see other people using Apple products, you're like, oh, that's, that's a person that uses an Apple product. Look at all the other, these brands that are popping up. Purple, Casper, I'm talking about like mattresses. And think about it. Like previously, when you went to go buy a mattress, you're spending two hours in sleepies. You're lying on all of these mattresses. It's this huge thing. You have to worry about taking it home. It's this large, like archaic process. And then someone comes in and says, this needs to be way more simple. We're going to make this thing. This company, our company is called Purple or Casper. It's going to be a super easy mattress. And, you know, there's not many options. We have this, this, or this. We're going to deliver it to your doorstep. The box is going to look super pretty. Everybody's going to look at the this huge mattress box on your on your front porch. And people are going to be like, oh, that's the person that buys mat that buys purple mattresses and they start to associate and build a brand around a freaking mattress and like that that never happened before so it's like the importance of having a brand telling a good story it all emerged from what steve jobs did and he just made he was like super anal about a stupid little thing like making sure that wires in the back of a computer who really thought that that was so important but obviously people cared about it yeah, I mean, and it was brilliant. And actually, you just touched upon where, like, you asked the question where startups are going, right? Um, that's exactly it, right? So the startups of today, the only way they can possibly compete is that they have to really establish that brand and that customer service, really go out there and give you value, or they have to have what we call superior content, right? I read an article how people are, you know, an article was basically saying about startups how, oh, the English majors are now relevant. Because it's about content now. And that, that uniqueness, that nicheness, it can't be that Apple can't really beat you at. Amazon can't really beat you at. You know what I mean? Once you establish that brand or once you establish that content, they have to reckon with you. And that's the only way startups of today can really, really survive. And that's not something you really learn in business school if you think about it. I mean, branding, I guess, in the marketing department, maybe, right? But that's part psychology, too. So I think some marketing schools, I don't know if we're doing it. I think we're doing it too. Uh, there's a behavioral marketing aspect. Or there's a behavioral aspect to, our, to the marketing department now that they're looking into. It was very quantitative before, and now they're slowly going to more behavioral. And, but content creation is not something out, totally outside of the business school, right? Content, like, I mean, if you talk about those mattresses, um, 
the way you represent those mattresses, the way you talk about it, the way you, you know, write about it, that, that stuff, it matters. It matters to people, right? And it shows a level of authenticity to the product as opposed to being another product on Amazon, another mattress on Amazon, right? So I think you nailed it. Like, I mean, with your original question about startups, you know, this day and age, this is the startups of today are about brands and content and pie service quality. And this is going to be great. I, I shouldn't say this is going to be great, but with all these businesses that are small businesses that are, that are, going to, that are failing and that are going to fail, right? It's going to leave a vacuum for other entrepreneurs to come out. And Mark Cuban talks about this. Your new industries are going to be coming out of, out of this, out of COVID. Even if we get the vaccine, right? Even if we get the vaccine, because people are traumatized. <laughs> people are traumatized, right? After the pandemic. Because what we know now is that at any moment, another pandemic can come. And by the way, everyone keeps saying that we're not, COVID's not going anywhere. We're going to live with COVID for the rest of our lives now. That's just the way it is. And even the vaccines, like Fauci said, if, he had, if they had a vaccine that was 50% effective, he would consider that a success. That's sad, right? That's sad. Things have changed, right? But in this change, I think I made this address in the, in the, like the farewell address for your, for your school. <laughs> but in this <laughs> change is where you're going to get the new Rockefellers. The new industries are going to come out of this, right? And I love it. And I think right now, the way you, you, these industries, you guys can approach this is through proper branding and content generation. Those are the two like real, those are the two like targets, tactics you can have for these startups. So when I look at these, so I always look at online businesses to like buy or invest for other investors. Like I have, there's some, I have certain investors that are really big on fintech and they want to, fintech's by the way, the most expensive thing to invest in, but they're really big on it. But I mean, what I look for is I look for, okay, is this company, are they good at brand branding or are they good at content generation? And that's usually a positive sign. And by the way, those companies, by the way, they tend to be prof They tend to be like somewhat self-sufficient. Like they're making money. Right, they only need investors because they plan to grow more economies of scale, but they're making right. money. So that's the that's by the way that's the I think Mark Cuban always talks about this. That's the crazy part about startups. The real startups, the really good startups, are the ones that really don't need money. <laughs> yeah, it's true. And it, it, another example, and I talked about the the mattress thing, but have you ever heard of Lemonade? Yeah. Oh yeah, dude. So I I was getting advertisements for it on my Instagram because I just signed the lease for an apartment down in DC. So obviously it knows I needs renters insurance. So I started getting these ads delivered. I'm like lemonade. This looks like the branding looks super cool. Like it was super simple. I didn't even know that it was insurance. Then I went <laughs> then I went on their website and I'm like it's renters insurance. It's it's auto insurance. It's renters insurance. You can insure certain things in your home. And I was like, I would have never thought that because they just told such a like, they made it look so cool that I was like, I want to check this out. And I totally agree with you with, you know, the startups that do very well, and are able to sustain themselves, and they're only going to raise capital, because they want to grow, are the ones that produce great content, tell a great story, and have a great brand. And I think that I mean, you hit the nail on the head when you said like one of the most valuable things that you can have coming out of school is that you're kind of working on building your personal brand or, you know, working on something on 
on the side and just kind of, you know, always building something else. And because if you could tell a great story, you can sell anything. And I, I've always thought, I always thought that that was super valuable. I went to the department. And I said, look, can we have my dog class be a real semester class? Cause these guys should be like starting a business. They should be, these guys should be failing at a business by the time they should, these guys should fail out of a business by the time they graduate. Right. Obviously, if it succeeds, that's ideal, but right. But my point is because you learn so much in starting suffering, right, through a trying to create a business that you just can't get from sitting in a classroom. You know what I mean? And about lemonade, I kind of feel bad about lemonade. You know Jordan? Jordan Cole, by the way? I think he's older than you. No. All right. So he's one of my alumni, Jordan Cole. Shout out to Jordan Cole. He had the idea of lemonade. Oh, no way. <laughs> Yeah, I, I think Lemonade obviously was out before him, but he on his own was like, yo, there's a, you know, there's a need for niche insurance. He was thinking about insuring like other kinds of things, focusing on college campuses, right? Right? But, you know, there's a need for it, right? Selling cell phone insurance or something yeah, like, like that. Yeah, like phones, laptops, stuff like that. Yeah, he's like, cause, you know, you guys, especially you guys on college, yeah, God knows you guys always break and lose things, right? <laughs> yep. So I, when I saw Lemonade, I was like, oh, Jordan. He must be flipping down now. <laughs> yep. So, uh, yeah, no, I love Lemonade. I love their whole idea. And I was, another thing about Lemonade is I was pissed about Lemonade because a few years back, I tried to get in on the insurance game, right? And I just couldn't do it. The cost just didn't work out. Um, and then when I saw Lemonade, that's another thing. I was like looking at them. I'm like, oh, damn it. They got it done, right? So, fantastic. Yeah, and I totally agree about the whole branding and, I love the fact you brought up the fact that you are your own personal brand in the business school, right? And I students like you, I love students like, see, when I teach, I hate teaching. Most people don't know this. I hate teaching. And some people are like, but you're such a good teacher. I'm like, I'm not, right? I'm good at co-working, right? Because you have students that are like awesome. Like you're one of those awesome students. You know what I mean? You're oh, thank you. spot on. <laughs> you're spot on. You worked on your brand. You hustled. And I love that stuff because I don't consider you a student. I consider you like a, I consider you like a, like one of my, part of my team at work, right? And part of my division, right? So that I like. I like working. I like co-working on things or blah, blah, blah. But you were, you hit a spot on. You're a personal brand, right? And these students and these business schools, they don't realize that, that, hey, you're not supposed to be a drone, right? You're supposed to be your own individual brand. And so when these guys are like in classes, and I, and I feel for them, but when they're in classes and they're not like trying to get the A and doing all they can to try to get the A in the class, right? I'm like, yo, what are you doing? <laughs> what are you doing? <laughs> right? Don't be in class. Like I had to tell some students, I'm like, look, if you don't want to be in any business class, you shouldn't be in the business school. Right? If you don't want to put in that effort, then you're in the wrong school. Some people are like, yeah, I don't want to do any classes in college. I'm like, you shouldn't be in college right now. So I tell, I tell younger students, like I tell their parents, and they never listen to me because, you know, they're just stuck in their ways. I'm like, if you send your kids to college, make sure they want to, they're going to do everything in their power to, to get the A. If they don't want to do that, that means they're distracted. They want, most likely they want to start their own business. Everybody wants to start their own business. And that's fine. But don't go to college then. Just start your own business. You know what I mean? Get out there. It's just, it's, it's so hard because you have this, I wrote a blog post about this like a while back, but you have this system in place and you've been told your entire life, you go to high school, 
and then you go to college and then you have a job and people don't tell you that shit like COVID happens or, you know, if you have a good idea, like just go do it as opposed to just following the system and just going along with it. I mean, I was a victim of it. I, I think that I told my parents this, like once I graduated, I was like, I think I could have been super productive had I not gone gone to school. Yes, I loved my college experience. I met so many great people. But the number one thing I got out of college, and this is kind of going off on a tangent, was the network. Like I got to meet super smart people that like you and other professors that kind of pushed me out of my comfort zone to try new things, learn new things. And yes, I learned a lot in the business school, but it was more or less about the relationships I built while I was there and the exposure that Rutgers gave me more so than the content and the stuff and the courses that I was taking. And I think that it was more about like persevering and, you know, taking the exams and shooting for the A as opposed to all the other stuff. But kind of going back to what you're saying, a lot of kids come out of high school and they might be super ambitious and want to try something out. But because this system exists, they feel pressured that they you know, they're, they're just supposed to, you know, follow their friends to college. So the, the next thing I kind of want to ask you is like, what do you think the future of education is? Uh, so that's, you know, that's a great question. Um, so we have to divvy that up. Like uh, we have to divvy that up between business education and all other education, right? Um, the reality is I'm going to focus on business education, obviously. So business education, the reality is that the reason why you went to college and you were pressured to go to college and all the other students were because these corporations with their business, with their job offers, they require it. It's that simple, right? So this, everything you went through was literally the, um, the ticket to get into the, to get into the game, the corporate game. Cause you couldn't, you couldn't get the job you had unless you went through college, right? That's the way it works. True. This system is going to stay for the vast majority. For now, the exceptions will be, again, the people like you. You're fantastic in the sense that I think you could have done something independently, but you also thrived in the college setting, which is great. You can always go back. I think after working a year or two, I think after a year or two, I think you might do your own thing anyway. After two years, you might reassess and leave to maybe do, join a startup or do another startup, right? That's my, I think that's my personal guess, what's going to happen with you after you do your two-year stint. Right. Um, and I think you, know, you benefited from the system. You benefit from being in the Rutgers and the Bates system, um, doing things you didn't want to do, but doing them well, right? And that's the key, by the way, to entrepreneurship, doing things you don't want to do and doing them well, or finding people to help you do them and do them well. Um, so the certain percentage of people that want to do startups, that want to start their own business, they have an idea, they're going to, they're going to uh, postpone their college entrance. That's going to be a fact. I, I firmly believe that because... A lot of these incubators and accelerators, and I so want to make Dahl into an accelerator within RBS. So I, I so bad, right? What they're going to do is they're going to uh, get go to these accelerators and these incubators instead of college. You're going to see that, all right? Especially with especially if they have access to certain capital. Uh, Mark, the only reason Mark Cuban went to college, he talked about, because because he could get the loans and funnel them into his business, right? That's what he would. That's apparently what he would do. The vast majority of you guys are still going to come to business school because you have to, because these corporate corporations require it. It is not until, and the tech companies are started doing this. Google, I think, is the first company to say, you don't need a college degree anymore. 
we just you just need to be able to do what we need you to be able to do, and we'll hire you. I think Amazon might join them. I think Facebook. I think Facebook started doing this too. But what about these other corporations? I think these other corporations eventually. I mean, it's hard for me to say will they get there, or won't they get there? I'm not sure. But these newer generation companies, I think, will start doing that. Not your legacy companies, but your newer generation companies. They will start doing that. Why? Because they're going to start competing for talent. Right? They remember it's all about talent. They want to start competing for talent. Once that reaches reaches critical mass, I think you will see the business school have to drastically change, because nobody. What are you learning in a business school? Right? Essentially, what are you learning in business school? Learn how to do business. That's not how you learn how to do business. You go do business. You know what I mean? It's like coming to school to learn how to do kickboxing. Right? You don't sit in a class to learn how to do kickboxing. I mean, obviously, there's strategies and whatnot. You got to go to a freaking gym and kick a bag like 100 times. <laughs> right? Each leg. Right? And they got to hit you in the shins with bamboo sticks and all this other crazy stuff. Right? <laughs> yep. I mean, that's what's going to happen with business. Right? So what I see happening with the business school, I see the business school slowly transforming more into an incubator style model. That's what I see start happening where you start working with, um, it's more of a partnership, public-private partnership between the university and other businesses, small businesses, right? And I think right now we have an opportunity because you have all these small businesses that are struggling digitally and online, and we have students that can help them, right? And we can start like these co-ops and all this other stuff. We talked about branding. Working on branding live, is going to become a different issue. The only thing you really need the business school in terms of classes is your fundamentals, your math, your stats. By the way, which is going nowhere. Those sciences will be there with us forever, right? No matter how things change, they will always be there. They will be the crux, the basic fundamentals of everything we do. Um, I'm going to throw programming into that, right? Even if you don't do a lick of programming, the, be, to be able to make algorithms, Right, that's the whole point. To be able to make algorithms is an incredible opportunity, learning opportunity. And I strongly encourage anybody listening to your podcast, if you've never taken programming, you know me, man. If you've never taken programming, take a programming class. Get on it. Yeah, yeah. learn programming. Even if you don't do a lick of programming, because the brilliance, that the application is the algorithm, right? That algorithm you're designing on paper or in your head or through programming, that is huge. Because that can transfer over. Being able to design algorithms is how you're able to design businesses. Yeah, and that's kind of what I tell whenever like under underclassmen ask me like, oh, like what's what's bait about? And I'm like, forget all of like the like the courses and that kind of stuff. It's gonna make you think a certain way, so that when you're on your computer or you want to build something or you're in the middle of an internship and you have to think about a better way to do something or to improve a process or to create a system so that it's repeatable and you can teach someone to, you know, easily plug someone in to execute that system. Like that's what the bait department is all about. Yeah. You can learn how to learn how to code, but once you have that kind of like that mindset, you can pick up any language, you can take over any process or any system. And obviously, like you have to have that mathematical and statistical background as well. But yeah, if you've never d 
done a lick of programming in your life, like definitely there's so many resources out there on YouTube to, to look at and kind of follow along. Yeah, I know. Absolutely. Man. I, what I do is I, I actually went to the department. And I asked, I said, listen, can we do a certificate program for alumni of Rutgers or even people that didn't go to Rutgers that can just come here and take a couple of programming classes, right? Because there's people in other, you know, people that did, I don't know, they became a chef or something like that. And they just want to pick up programming. And a lot of people, when you're new to programming, so here's where I knock the online school system. When you're new to something, you can't do it online. You can't be in an online school. We found out now through COVID, it doesn't work. When you're an expert at something, the online system is awesome. It's exponential. So and advanced classes, I think, should be online. Right? Um, certain kind of training should be online. Certain kind of work should be online. Seasoned people, the teams that know what they're doing. Newbies need to be in classrooms. That is not going to go anywhere. I think COVID has taught us this, right? So where do you, like, where, where did you learn that and kind of how did you draw that line and come to that conclusion? So because what happened with COVID, right? So RBS, Rutgers Business School, just so you know, they and like all other business schools, they're heavily, they've been heavily strategizing to go online. Heavily, right? COVID came along and said, everyone's like, all right, let's do this, right? The business school is patting themselves on the back. And they started sending out surveys, right? Yo, students hate it. And the question is, which students hate it? It's the students that are in a class that is something, uh, some sort of subject that is completely new to them, right? Completely new to them. Whereas students that are taking a class that is a continuation of other classes they've done, they love online. They love it, right? Look at the dichotomy. Some people love the online class, some people hate it. And what you find when you drill down, it is because when you have some sort of understanding of your material and you're further, you're, you're, you're advancing on that material, you're, 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 for, you're going further in learning the material, it's perfect, it's flexible, you do it at your own time, you can look at the videos over yourself, you know, the interaction um, whenever you want. That flexibility is amazing. But when you're learning something from scratch, something completely new, it does not work because there you don't learn. Remember I told you this? You don't really learn from what the professor is saying. You learn from what the professor is doing, right? More importantly, you learn by looking at the professor. So when you look at the professor, like for me, some students, they're totally confused. I'm like, all right, what's your question, man? Right? I know you want to ask a question, and they're not sure what question to ask. When you're learning something new, you have to ask questions. The problem is you don't know what questions to ask, right? When you're learning something advanced that you already have some sort of basic understanding of, you know exactly which questions to ask during a QA session or an email or some sort of online format and get your answers. When you're learning something completely new, you're confused. You want to ask a question. You have no idea what question to ask. That gets hashed out in conversation in class, right? And that happens with not just the professor and the student, but the students with each other and other students with the professor. So why couldn't that collaboration happen online? So that could happen live on WebEx. That definitely can't, like WebEx or Zoom, that def definitely can happen, right? But it has to be, um, to be effective, they have to do what they find, you have to have breakout sessions. It has to be a smaller amount of people. Because online, there's a, it, you can't, online you, you, it, it gets to a critical mass way too fast. So you have to have much fewer people together, right, online, and then it'll work. 
So I've been, I have Q&A sessions. So the way my online classes work is like this. I don't know. I, I record everything on YouTube, right? Everything. I have the slides. I, have, I go through those slides. I have the code. I go through that code all on YouTube, and I give it out to everybody. And then I have Q&A sessions. I have a Q&A session before people look at the video and after they look at the video. The Q&A sessions people like. Some people, and a lot of people like the videos because they get to go through it anytime they want. But they like the Q&A sessions. But the Q&A sessions that are smaller and people start talking, I find there's a lot more. Those Q&A sessions go the longest, right? And there's a lot more interaction. And people say, wait, what did you say? But the QA sessions, when you have like 40 people on, right, they're the shortest and not many people ask questions. So it'll work, but they have to have, you have to now break up the classes. You have the QA sessions have to be broken up in smaller amounts of people. But still, I would argue, right, and I got this from my MBAs as well. Um, the new stuff, like anybody who's a new programmer, they so much rather prefer being in class, having that live interaction while they code. They want to watch, they want to bring their code up to me and say, what am I doing wrong? And I agree with that. And that's something that I enjoyed about your class when you had like the labs and everything where we would go and we're working through this live with you. And that's kind of like, yes, code is, it's like trial and error, but at the same time, you can learn so much from just seeing the code work in real time and running running your program after you put each line in and kind of understanding, okay, this does this, this does this and asking questions about different things. Like what if this, what if that? And I think it would be very difficult to create the same environment that you're talking about where a student's comfortable to come up to you and say, Hey, like what's wrong with my, or like what's the deal with my code online? I think that there's potential to get there, but right now people are so, accustomed to, okay, I'm doing, I'm going to class to learn this. I'm in person. If I have a question, I can bring my computer physically up to you. And until that, the technology and it's there, but it's just not, it'd take a while for people to widely adopt it and be comfortable kind of in that learning environment. And maybe that's the next generation of, of learning is entirely online, but it'll take a while. Like it's not, it's not just going to like, you know, flip a switch. Like you were talking about before, like Rutgers was like, oh, okay, like we're going online, flip a switch and everybody's just happy. Like, I think that until it's the norm that courses are online and Hey, this is how we do things here that people are going to be comfortable with it. Well, I mean the, uh, so the, the more advanced classes, people loved it. Right. So if I were to do it like an investment modeling part two or three, I think it could be online and students would love it and they would thrive in it. So that, I, I find that that's the, you know, that's, that's basically the, the strange part about online classes. That if it's a beginner class, if something people are doing for the first time, it's some sort of way of thinking or some sort of subject material that's brand spanking new to them, that classroom experience, and smaller the better, is great because it, it's all about, you know, having that interaction at Q&A session. But when it's something you're building on and you're doing more advanced classes, I, I think online, the online system, actually is superior. It is superior, right? Because now the students have flexibility to go over the material in the order they want as much as they want. Like some of my students, they go through YouTube, really, they speed up. You know how you can control the tempo of the YouTube video? They do it really fast. Some of them, yeah. they just repeat it over and over again, right? 
So that flexibility, the students love that. So what I'm saying is, but the fundamentals, right, when it comes to the fundamentals, it doesn't really translate over online teaching as of now. It doesn't translate over to online teaching as of now yet. And I think it has something to do with the fact of just how we socialize and interact as human beings, right? I mean, the best way you learn, if you think about the way you learn as a little child, you learn by mimicking your parents. You know what I mean? So that's just innate in us at that point. Like when you're learning something brand, brand new, you like seeing the person live, and uh, it's something about it. So it's funny, in Colombia, they're doing it slightly different. You know, I teach one class a semester at Columbia, right? I didn't know that, but okay. All right. Now you know, bro. Now you know. <laughs> don't worry. I, I don't think the Big shot. Are you, are you leaving Rutgers or what? No, no, no. I will never leave Rutgers. The first <laughs> chance I get, Austin. The first chance I'm out of here. No, no, no. That's what we all say. No, I love all, everyone, at Rutgers just, everyone at Rutgers just wants to get out, and then they realize, eh, I kind of like it here. Eh, kind of right. I, I, I think I'm too set in my ways right now. But um, <laughs> the only way I would leave Rutgers if I get like, um, if I if somebody if a school gives me an incubator and say, hey, we want you to launch this incubator and run this incubator, then I'd leave. Because I, I that is like, I think that would be so much fun to get you guys in a classroom, and day one saying, all right, guys, which business are we launching? You know what I mean? I love that. And like, even you talking about it, like gets me fired up. Like I, I would have loved to have that. And I was recently, I recently interviewed this guy named Grant Talek. He went to Babson, the, the like the best entrepreneurship right, school. Right, right. Yeah, yeah, and yeah. he was, he was telling me about his experience there. And I'm like, dude, if I would have known that this is what happens here, like I totally would have gone here. And it's just, I think that we could learn like Rutgers and lots of universities or business schools can definitely learn from what they're doing there. Because they, they literally, I've, I'm just thinking back to the conversation with them. I'm pretty sure that they get they get a certain amount of money their freshman year and they get placed in a group and they're basically just like, all right, start your own business. Kind of like what you were talking about. And I was like, what? Like, that's awesome. Like, why is that not the case with, I mean, not everybody wants to be an entrepreneur, but there's, like you said before, there's so much you can learn from falling flat on your face or, you know, just every, just kind of the the process of, building something on your own. Oh my God. And there's so many skills. Like, yeah, yeah. Even if you don't become an entrepreneur, I mean, you, you actually brought up an excellent point. I mean, wait till you start working, dude. Wait till you actually start working in corporate America. Well, you're actually not going to get the real experience yet. <laughs> but I mean, um, <laughs> like working in groups, working in a hierarchical structure where the corporation does not give a damn about you or your success, right? That is like in about a lot of times my alumni, you know what ends up happening? Like six to seven months or possibly nine months, I get an email on LinkedIn. They want to talk. And I know exactly what they want to talk about. <laughs> They're depressed out of their minds. Because what they thought they were getting into was not what they, what they got into at all. Right? And I have to basically coach them through the process again. Like, yeah, do your two years, find your bosses, your mentors, blah, blah, blah. You'll be good. I think you're solid. I think you're ready to go. You, you pretty much have an understanding how this works. I think in two years, you're going to bounce anyway, honestly. In two years, I think you're going to bounce and move into something that you want to try, which is great. I think that's going to be great. I'll hit you up in two years. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Uh, hopefully, I'll be fully funded by then. Strike valuation will be fully funded by then. But um, at Rutgers, by the way, I'm making the pitch again, again, to do the, my doll class as a bait class, a bait elective. Let's see what happens. 
So for people that don't know what DAL is, can you just do a brief brief description? So it's basically the idea around it is basically we start from end to end specking out a business. And then we, uh, it's basically supposed to be like a lab-centric way to start a business, right? So you have an idea, a hypothesis, and you want to test that hypothesis. And instead of doing it in an actual lab, our laboratory is actually the whole campus in New Brunswick, right? And if it's online, possibly whoever we're targeting. It's an actual business. And the objective is very simple. Can we, can we make a buck, right? So it's like an entrepreneurship class. But it's broken down more in an analytical, in a, from an analytical point of view than possibly other methodologies out there, right? But uh, so that's basically the gist. Like we're trying to start a company and we're saying, okay, let's say we want to sell lemonade. I don't know, right? We want to sell lemonade. Who's going to buy our lemonade? Who would we sell it to? At what price? We test it out. We find a market. We try to say, hey, we want to sell you lemonade. Do you want to buy it? And this is the price we're selling it at. The worst that can happen, people say no. Right, and then we just go back and, and we try to get more information, interview them, interview people, go back, rejigger the product, start again. And you, the idea is to do the iterations as fast and as frequent as possible, so that you can finally find a winning formula. Which, by the way, most of these startups, overwhelmingly startups, have done. They just did it over and over and over again until they, they you know, iteration after iteration after iteration, until they uh, found a winning formula. You know that company Twitch. Yeah. Right? You probably are on that, aren't you? I'm not on Twitch. That's that's <laughs> one of the ones I've not got. I'm not a big gamer. So, like, I I haven't really figured it out. But now I've, I've found that a lot of people are using Twitch for other things other than just live streaming. So, so maybe I'll check it out. Twitch started with basically these guys in the house uh, with a camera so you can watch these guys play games and stuff. Or do whatever on, at, at the house. Like this one screen, whatever they were doing on their screen. Or watching them TV, surf the TV or something like that. That's how it started. And it iterated from there. You know what I mean? Minimum viable product. Yeah, and that's what doll is supposed to be. That's the whole point of doll, right? So I'm going to make the pitch one more time. Let's see what happens. You'll have to keep me posted. <laughs> Hell yeah, man. Hell yeah. So last question. What do you think it means to be gritty and curious? Oh my God, I, to, to me, to be gritty and curious is just keep grinding it out, right? And grinding it out in, in uh, grinding it out in all things that you have no clue about and no idea about. I love it, short and sweet. Well, Waj, thank you so much for your time. You know, we covered a lot of different things. I think we could have talked for another two hours. Maybe we'll have to have you on again, for sure. Bring me back, and, man. Yeah, definitely. But thank you so much. Appreciate it. No, no, thanks for having me, Austin. I look forward to having this, uh, to listening to this again. All right, I'm going to send it out. I'll send it out to all my uh, peeps. Sounds good. So you have been listening to the Greedy and Curious Show, where we have conversations with greedy and curious people. If you enjoyed this show, you'd be the best if you subscribed, left a rating, and wrote a quick review. By doing this, you let us know that you're listening and it inspires me to keep creating. Until next time, stay greedy.